Welcome to the ACAS podcast. Today we are looking at the big picture and planning out to look at employee voice. What is it? What role can it play in making our workplaces better? And how can it play that in building back better after and during coronavirus? So it's big picture, meaty discussion for those interested in shaping the world of work. I'm here with Jill Dix, who is head of policy at ACAS. And we're joined today by special guest Paul Novak, who is Deputy General Secretary of the TUC, and Neil Carberry, who is Chief Executive of the REC. Neil and Paul have both been really heavily involved in shaping the world of work through their organisations, but also as their role as ACAS council members. So it's great to have you here with us today to have this discussion. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. So to kick us off, employee voice. Jill, I wondered if you could start off by describing what it is that we're talking about when we use words like employee voice. Yes, Sarah, thanks. And it's good to be here on the podcast. Yeah, I agree. The idea of employee voice is a slightly abstract term. It's actually quite a simple, essentially a simple idea. It's about workers basically being able to have their say at work. But here comes the tricky bit that having their say has to be part of a dialogue, I think. And that's really what makes for good employee voice. Now, that can be sort of through organised voice, and we generally tend to term that collective voice and most commonly talk about the trade union movement or through staff associations. And the focus is really on the impact of that voice on most or all of the workers in that workplace. But then we also talk about voice being very much an individual right or an individual entitlement where people just are able to have their say at work, can talk to their managers, can raise their concerns, and really importantly, can share their ideas as well. I think with Paul and Neil here today, it's going to be good to talk most about what we might think of as collective voice. But clearly, the two issues do go hand in hand. Yeah, just a few more words, really, for me before we hear from others. But I was reading an article just the other night, which referred to voice as being mission critical at the moment. And I thought that was interesting. And I think I know what they're talking about as we live through rather than emerge from probably uh, the COVID pandemic. There's a massive shake up in our social and our working life. And I think worker voice is critical at the moment in creating balance and calm and continuity, but ultimately in finding a resolution to how we regain where we were and improve where we were, maybe. I mean, for my mind, voice is and always has been mission critical. Uh, but I get what they're saying when they think it's mission critical now, the authors of that paper. I suppose the question is, are we fit for purpose with voice at that point? I know that, you know, if you look back to McLeod and Clark's work on engagement, voice was one of the levers, but was probably the one in certainly in research that we commissioned that was the one that was lagging most in its establishment. We hear about voice shallowing out and consultation arrangements being difficult to maintain at a high level. But nonetheless, we are where we are. And I think it's going to be really interesting to hear from others where they think the state of employee voice is. So with that question, Paul, where do you see voice showing up at the moment and, and how do you think that it can show up better at the moment? Well, well, that's a big question, Sarah. And listen, first of all, you're going to have to excuse me if you hear background noise. It's the, it's the rain bouncing off the roof of my shed because we're obviously doing this remotely. But I, I mean, I think voice covers a whole range of sins and virtues, doesn't it? I mean, for me, the key thing about voice is it has to be effective voice. And I, I suppose, you know, it's not enough for people to have a voice. That voice needs to be heard. So it, it, it takes different forms in different workplaces. I suppose it, it's a truism, but it's it, it's important nonetheless to sort of 
recognise that, you know, there isn't one size that fits all workplaces and all sorts of organisations. But I don't care if you're running a, a corner shop or you're running a, a multinational company. The idea that you give your staff the opportunity to input into the work that they do, that you listen to their ideas, that you give them a sense that their opinions are valued and rewarded. And that crucially, you act upon that voice, I think, is, is important. So now, so... As you mentioned, I mean, I suppose from a trade union perspective, that's probably normally articulated, Sarah, through, you know, yeah, formal recognition agreements with employers, through collective bargaining arrangements, and that's common across the public and private sector. Um, there are obviously non-union workplaces out there as well, where there'll be other types of uh, employee voice. But I mean, I say the starting point from my point of view is about it being effective voice and a voice that's heard. Um, you know, we've all we've all work probably in workplaces or for organizations where employee voices you know put your ideas in the suggestion box or the digital equivalent to me that's not effective or meaningful voice i think it's very easy for firms to think you know this is it's all about this this kind of slightly uh, ubiquitous acronym evp employee value proposition and if we get the employee value proposition right you know we'll align what we're asking for for the employees what we've got to achieve in the business and everything will be lovely and i i mean it's a slightly naive view of how human beings in the workplace work you know people come to work with diverse and goals for what they want to to achieve they uh, come to work looking for different bits of meaning. Um, as an employer, your job is basically to align that effort with the things that the organisation needs to achieve. And, and what that means is that to some extent, conflict in workplaces is inevitable. And that's not a bad thing. You know, differing points of view and different cha challenges are a driver of innovation, they're a driver of change. But as employers, we have to think about, well, how do you channel that potential for conflict into really positive actions that help employees and help the company prosper? If you don't have a process in the business for thinking about voice and how voice happens, the risk is actually that when it arrives, it arrives in quite destructive ways, uh, which is clearly in no one's interest. Yeah, so kind of if we were to summarize what voice is it's it's actually put very simply how do you listen to your people and as Jill said create that two-way dialogue and um, but because workplaces are complex we have different mechanisms that we can use to do that and workplaces do that to varying degrees but if they don't do it then there's a desire still for voice to be heard, but it doesn't come up in the most constructive ways and will come up as badly handled conflict. Yeah, that's exactly my point, which is, I, you know, we've had a, there are a couple of sort of case examples of where companies have imagined that just because they say things will be a certain way, things will be a certain way. And ultimately, employees will find a way of expressing their views, whether that's dissatisfaction or ideas that need to come out, whether that is that they move on to somewhere else, which is what you don't want, or whether you get a bigger conflict. There's certainly something there about just encouraging all employers to think about the pipework of how are we hearing what people think in the business early enough that we're not surprised when we find it out in staff surveys or from trade union reps and early enough that actually we can be in on sorting that out 
in the normal course of business rather than having these peaks of conflict which are, are not in the interest of anyone in the business. I indulged myself by looking back at the last workplace employment relations survey just recently, which, if you might remember, it was conducted during the period of the last recession. And I think what we're coming, what we're talking about really is what's good voice. And if you look back at the findings from that about what was it that made some companies survive during the last recession, it was a kind of virtuous circle of good voice, not just voice, as Neil was saying, good voice arrangements that generates trust, that generates good trust that generates good voice. And it was the companies that invested in, indeed, inv invested in working practices generally, but also those that invested in unions and voice arrangements that actually ended up with the employees with the uh, with the greatest commitment and productivity outcomes. So it really was a key to survival in the last recession. And sadly, we're looking like where well, we are heading in the same direction. So um, I think to bring it together, the point about voice being absolutely central, the business case is made. And I, then I think the point that um, Neil is adding to it is it has to be good voice, uh, which goes back to Paul's point. You're absolutely right, Jill. I mean, we're in a really uh, difficult environment at the moment, aren't we? I mean, sort of COVID-19 is right at the forefront of everybody's uh, mind and it's, it's already had a massive impact. Uh, in workplaces. And you mentioned the sort of previous recession, Jill. The experience there was that this is an opportunity to engage the workforce and what can we do imaginatively, creatively together to make sure our organisation and the people who work through for it get through to the other uh, side. And, you know, uh, Neil was absolutely right about the, the value in voice, not um, eradicating conflict in work, but helping to channel and to mitigate the impacts of conflict in work. But it's also a real opportunity for employers as well to get ideas from the shop floor, from the people who are doing the job day in, day out about how we can improve processes, how we can deliver better customer service, how we can do things more uh, efficiently. And I think, you know, that's important for the people that I represent as well, because, you know, people go to work and like to feel that they can influence the job that they do. And I don't, I don't care whether you're working in a supermarket or you're working in a nuclear power station, the idea that you've got ideas and somebody takes those ideas on board and listens to you and takes you seriously is really important to think. Uh, but now more than ever, particularly, you know, sort of as we deal with the, you know, the last, you know, we know the impact of the, the pandemic won't be over in six weeks or probably six months. Uh, it, we're all in this for the long term. So I think, and you know, I agree with a lot of points I've said there. I think what's really important to call out here is that none of this as an employer, uh, as a business is about being nice. Um, it's not, you know, it's not something you do as a staff benefit. This is actually much more about different ways to resolving really difficult things. But that, I think, is the real management challenge for businesses, which is how do you have the confidence to safely have really difficult conversations with your staff um, and finding the, the structures in which to do that? is difficult but absolutely worthwhile and you know in lots of larger businesses and in many smaller businesses that you know trade unions play a role in that but even where trade unions are not present or not recognized that does not imply that that level of kind of input and control over working life that uh, that voice generates isn't wanted by people. I think it's a very powerful driver, especially in, in tough times for employees' engagement with a company.
taken the unions as a start. Their job needs to continue. They need to continue to look at paying terms and conditions. But really, are we at a point now where where there's a lot of issues that need to be totally renegotiated? Um, we've talked about the importance of business survival and how voice and in all its forms has got a role in that. But I was thinking about much bigger issues as well, such as the value and purpose of organisations. Then you've got the kind of not marginal at all issue anymore of safety at work. You know, a really centre stage question of safety where, where, where voice plays a part in that. Then through to more specific individual concerns about what does the future of flexibility look like. So I kind of agree that managers and employees have got a massive challenge on their hand, as has the union movement and other forms of voice in organisations. And, you know, the matrix bigger. I was thinking that's both collective and individual issues. It's for those in workplaces and those working remotely, and it's short, medium and long-term objectives. So uh, I think if if we can all work together, ACAS, the employer bodies, the union movement, I think we've got quite a tall order, but believe that, you know, there is there is a way that we can promote our joint thinking on this. Unions have always been, you know, um, had a focus on things like pay terms and conditions. Uh, but, you know, when I started off as a, a young union activists like sort of 30 years ago i mean one of the first things i was taught was you know don't assume you know what 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 really matters to the people that you are representing and so there's a challenge there for unions to make sure that we're uh, helping to give effective voice to the people that we represent on the stuff that really matters to them and obviously pay will be one of those issues but it may well be about skills it may be about progression it may be about that balance between working from home working in the office and so that does that's a responsibility on us as organizations to make sure that we're we're helping to articulate the issues that really matter to our uh, to our members i mean just to pick up something else that neil said i mean i think he's absolutely right that you know employers need to have the confidence to find the mechanisms to uh, help facilitate effective employee voice and i suppose that the, what i'd add to that is this stuff doesn't happen by accident um you know it it doesn't you know all all all, all the warm words about um, giving workers effective voice don't don't really count for anything unless you do put those mechanisms in place. And as I say, for me, central is about unions and and collective bargaining. But I think there are other things that we should be collectively thinking about. I mean, the, as a result of the uh, the Taylor review, the, um, uh, the the trigger threshold for the information and consultation arrangements has gone down. You know, could we use that as an opportunity to extend em employee voice across British workplaces? And for me. Mm -hmm. You know, workers on board, that's, a, that's an important part of the employee voice. It's not the whole story, but that sort of sense that people from the shop floor um, can help influence the big strategic decisions and bring their perspective into boardrooms, I think is a really interesting idea, something that we're very supportive of, because, yes, we want to influence practice at a workplace level as well. But, it, you know, in terms of giving British business a little bit of a dose of you know, long term thinking and a little bit more transparency and openness, having those workers' voices in boardrooms would be useful as well. Taking up what you were saying about mechanisms there, I'm just wondering for someone listening to this podcast who's heard all of your passionate and and really good arguments for why we should prioritise voice, what are the mechanisms that they could put in place themselves in their workplace that would really help create good voice? Well, maybe I start off and recognise a union. <laughs> we <might start laughs> there. You'll be surprised like how from well. the teachers saying that. But, but there's actually a serious point underneath that, which is actually, I think, for, for employers and for certainly the new generation of HR managers coming through, 
I would I would encourage them not to be afraid of unions and not to be afraid of engaging with unions. Now, ultimately, the decision about whether or not people are represented uh, by a union has to rest with the workers themselves. Um, but for me, you know, all too often, you know, I come across employees who don't have a huge amount of experience in dealing with unions and 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 see us through the prism of the of the press uh, or see us through the a political prism that you know because the only stories you read about um, unions in the mainstream press are about strikes and about the Labour Party, and that really doesn't in any way reflect the job that we do day in day out to represent the sort of five and a half million six million people that we represent. So I, I would encourage employers to have an open mind about engaging um, with unions. Because the kind of link with employee voice there is because unions can help you listen to your people well in a constructive way early on, which can yeah, save yeah. problems down the line. Absolutely. But also, I, I have literally had the, the conversations with employers where they say, well, we don't need a union because we're a good employer. And the idea that like a good employers and unions are somehow mutually exclusive to me just doesn't stack up. I mean, you can see some of the most successful organisations in the country that have strong, robust relationships with unions but ultimately positive relationships with unions so uh, yeah I, I, i'm not a hr director or manager but you know, i know i would encourage those uh, people who are not to think about you know your staff wanting to be represented by an independent union as somehow a failing on your part or a failing on the part of the organization it's entirely possible for people to be proud of working for an organization to want that organization to be successful and also to want an independent union voice and Neil, from an employer's perspective, how have you seen voice done well? So I, I think Paul happens on something which I think is really important there, which is as an employer, you can't control kind of everything in the process of how voice happens. And you have to kind of slightly get comfortable with that. If a, a trade union is how employees want to be represented, then as, as a business, there's a duty on you to be respectful of that. There are lots of other ways in which voice can happen. Um, what's important, I think, is that you have a strategy for how it happens. And a couple of things I'd draw out there. Um, firstly, Jill mentioned the uh, the last Workplace Employment Relations Survey. And because she's geeked out on that, I'm going to dive into it as well. And, um, and point out that what's really interesting is that while there is relatively little reported in that survey of kind of formal structures for voice, Actually, what people say about their work reflects that there probably is more voice going on than uh, uh, th than perhaps there are formal structures for it. And I think that's about management culture. So first and for foremost, uh, linking in, you know, how does voice, how do we handle voice in our management culture? How do we train our managers to deal with it uh, rather than leaving it to HR? I think is important. And then coming to Paul's point, I absolutely absolutely do think that HR um, has developed down a quite a sort of HRM school of thought. You've got your reward specialist, your, your talent acquisition spe specialist, your employee value preposition, uh, proposition uh, uh, people. Yeah, actually, company-side employment relations thinking has been underinvested for a while. And, you know, the, the the ER guy is usually the person that the chief executive puts his head into his hands when he, when they walk into the room uh, because they're going to um, they're usually there because there's a problem. Um, and actually, it's breaking that culture that matters is that how are we thinking about ER all of the time in terms of that movable feast and how, uh, uh, of 
what employers are telling us, uh, what employees are telling us, what the company is trying to achieve, and the ongoing process of trying to get those two things to clear against each other. So it's a much more iterative and line management led process than kind of what we've been used to maybe in some of the HR textbooks for the last few years. So rather than almost delegating voice to specific people or specific departments, trying to think about everybody who's involved in hearing opinions from staff and how you can equip them to hear those opinions and and act in in a way that strengthens employee voice in a good way rather than an unconstructive way. I think that's right. If you think about it, think things through. If you're thinking about a big uh, reconstruction, a round of redundancies, and it's the first time that anyone has ever uh, asked the employees about anything, then it's going to be rightly treated with a certain amount of caution by by the workforce. Whereas if people are used to in the culture of the business, in their weekly meetings with manage, with with their own managers, getting a sense that they are being listened to, then I think the big stuff becomes easier to do as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. So practicing and equipping on the small things. I think Neil's point about doing this, not just at times of crisis or at times when there are problems, but building it into the day-to-day work of an organisation is really important. And I, I always have this sort of very strong memory of going to a, a, a well-unionised uh, engineering plant in the northeast of England where there was you know, strong tr- trade union, virtually everybody in union membership, as you, as you would expect. And, and we sat down, we had a presentation from the um, uh, 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 senior member of staff at the, at the plant about the company's sort of strategic plans over the next five years. And then when we spoke to the shop stewards, the reps on the ground um, and said, well, do you have these sorts of discussions on a regular basis? They said that, that this is literally the first time we've ever sat down and had a presentation about you know the future of the organisation. Now, they were having a sort they would be talking about pay constantly and they'd be talking about terms and conditions. But in terms of thinking about the big stuff that, you know, where do we see the future of this organisation? What does that mean for staff? What might it mean for our skills mix? There'd never been that sort of regular dialogue between the union and and staff and, and the management. And that, to me, is just that's like that's, that's craziness because I, what a missed opportunity um, to, to actually get staff to understand why companies might be taking the decisions they're actually taking, why they're asking them to work in certain ways. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that I think, you know, I like to think that the people that we represent, they're all grown-ups. Um, they're not daft. Uh, and they, they can they can see through the BS pretty clearly. Uh, and that and that just, you know, sort of treating people like they're grown-ups and bringing them into the conversation. And as Neil said, making sure that that, that is not something that, oh, God, we've got to make redundancies. Now we'll talk to you. I mean, you should be building that sort of culture right right throughout the day-to-day work of an organisation, I think. I definitely think that, that that point is one that ACAS operational senior advisors would echo, which is that um, voice should be there for the good and the bad times. And in fact, if you can smooth out and oil the wheels when a crisis comes up, if you've got your institution or your arrangement in place, then you're cooking on gas, really, that you know, not having to create from scratch. That's definitely a message that I've heard. We started off talking about how this is mission critical. And I think it's fair to say that everybody understands more than ever the need to bring people along with you um, in a workplace. But 
a lot of people are trying to bring their workplace along with them or listen to their workplaces remotely. And I'm just wondering what your reactions are to that. How do we create good voice in a context where this is, as we are doing currently, remotely? I think partially that's about not giving ourselves a free pass. So as many people will be quick to remind you, not all workplaces are closed. Uh, so there are plenty of workplaces which are open where the, the mechanisms might be more disaggregated than normal. I mean, clearly you're not going to get the workforce together in one big room at the moment. Um, but equally, I think employers have found that, you know, things like staff meetings on Zoom are often actually rather better for some of this stuff because you have to think about structuring it, thinking about how you present what the company's got to say and thinking about how you take feedback. And, you know, in, in my own experience, just at the, with the team at the REC, I think it's been a powerful tool for engagement just through this period to, to increase the volume of discussion that we've been doing with the, uh, with the staff. So I don't think it's impossible. It's different. I don't think it's fundamentally uh, more difficult to achieve. What role do you think voice can play when we're talking about race inequality and discrimination? I think that works, voice needs to work doubly hard around those excluded groups. I mean, from, from my uh, perspective, Sarah, I mean, one of the keys to effective voice is about redressing the power imbalances that exist in uh, in workplaces, you know, uh, power imbalances between individual employees and their employer. I mean, that's part of the job of, of unions is to give people a, a collective voice to redress that fundamental power imbalance. But then there's also a responsibility on unions, for example, to make sure that we're genuinely representative. Uh, I think we need to do more, for example, to make sure that we've got more black workers taking on reps roles within uh, unions so that our rep space is genuinely representative, more work to do to put women into senior positions in the trade union movements. So uh, unions absolutely fundamentally, I think, have got a role to play in terms of making sure that the issues and concerns of black workers are effectively articulated and part of our uh, agenda. That's a challenge to us as organisations, but it's also a challenge to the uh, to the employers that we engage with as well. I think that's right, Paul. And from a business perspective, you know, a greater understanding that as businesses, we exist within society. You know, there's a lot of discussion about business and society. You know, there's a lot about social economic diversity, which overlaps in many ways with some of the themes around uh, people coming into the workforce from black and minority ethnic uh, backgrounds as well, where I think it behoves us as businesses to think about how we uh, how we open our doors more broadly and think a bit differently about uh, how people might come to us and how they might add value to us. It's not about the best way. It's about finding a good way. And I think more businesses need to challenge themselves to remember that a good way is enough that opens you up to a greater diversity of approaches to how we we tackle things and perhaps opens your mind to different ways of recruiting and engaging with staff that that will fundamentally underpin cult, a culture in your business that people coming from different backgrounds will want to work in. Thanks for those thoughts. I wondered if to round off, I could ask for a top tip from each of you on employee voice, your biggest insight into how you can create good voice wherever you are? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a, a relatively discreet area, actually, which is recognising that representing employees, employee views 
and listening to the listening to the views of reps is actually not necessarily a given skill. It's a bonus bona fide skill that people need to be trained in so that the roles are fully recognized and realized for for the best for everyone. And so it's quite a marginal comment really, but nonetheless I think it's absolutely at the heart of what makes for good voice. So training for both the managers and the reps. I mean for me, I mean I, I've mentioned before unions have got a key role to play in terms of helping give workers collective voice to redress those power imbalances. Uh, in workplaces and I would say to employers that where staff choose to join a union want to be represented by that union then respect that choice uh, but ultimately trust your workforce because you know my experience in workplaces in the public and private sector is that people want the organizations that they work for to be successful they want their company or their organization to, to be proud to work for that company and organization and giving people effective voice enables them to feel that sense of pride and that sense of involvement and engagement and i think that's good for any organization so just to finish off on this then um quite simply it's uh managerial culture not hr policy um anything that you impose from hr um that feels like kind of an additional loop in the process to getting stuff done will face resistance whereas if it's just how you do business then I think it embeds and you get some upside out of in terms of engagement from from involving people in voice processes. And there are little things you can do as leaders of businesses to embed that, which is, you know, if someone comes to you the plan, uh, you know, ask where it comes from, ask what the team thinks, you know, send signals that, that this is how we work. Um, I think a lot of this is about behaviours in, in the line in the business rather than what we expect from HR. Mm, so training people, both the managers and the reps, to do voice well, trust your workforce, respect their choice to join a union and also focus on influencing managerial culture. Well, thank you so much, Paul, Neil and Jill, for a fascinating conversation about voice, how we strengthen it and why it matters for all workplaces now. You've been listening to the ACAS podcast. You can get into more depth on voice on our website and I've put links to two policy papers in the episode notes covering how we build back better from coronavirus and a deep dive look at consultation. But also we can help if your workplace is facing issues with voice, then please do call us and I've put the number for that in the episode notes as well. Thanks for listening.